Hello, and welcome to History Through Fiction, the podcast. Today's episode is sponsored by D.G. Schulman, author of the novel Anna's Promise. A journey of rebellion and transformation threatens the bonds of love and family. Yeah, I mean, he was quite a hero. I'd say he's the hero of this story. I'd only gotten maybe two two chapters in when I'm thinking, why don't people know about this? This is so amazing. Hello, and welcome to History Through Fiction, the podcast. I'm your host, Colin Mustful, and today I am delighted to be joined by Stephanie Lansom, author of the novel Codename Idlevice. That would probably be my, my idea of success these days, but I wouldn't mind the New York Times bestseller list. <laughs> Stephanie Lansom writes about women in history for women who love history. She is the author of In a Far-Off Land, a story of murder, mystery, and mercy set in the glamour of 1930s Hollywood and the grit of the Great Depression. She is also the author of the Living Water series, stories of women transformed by encounters with Jesus. Stephanie has traveled on four continents and dozens of countries. When she can't travel, she reads fiction and history and dreams of her next adventure, whether it be in person or on the pages of her novels. Today, I'll be talking to her about her new historical novel, Codename Idlevice. I'd like to start with the main character, Liesl Weiss, the main character of Codename Edelweiss. How does she come to know Leon Lewis and, and, and you know, wh- who is she and, and what role does she play in the story? Yeah, well, I really love Liesl because she changes so much at the beginning of the book. She's a she's a secretary at MGM. She's kind of struggling with um, what most women who worked full time in those days, especially in Hollywood in the studios, did struggle with, which is you know sexual harassment and you know not getting paid enough and you know a lot of those issues. Um, and she's not at all worried about what's going on on the other side of the world. She doesn't really care about Hitler and what people are saying about him. And the fun part about writing this book is it's set at a time where nobody really knew what to think about Hitler. He was just kind of a guy who was leading Germany and no one had a real opinion about him. So it's hard for us to imagine that. So I thought that was, it was kind of fun to go from that perspective. Anyway, so Lisa loses her job And she's searching for a new job and she runs across Leon Lewis, who is a Jewish lawyer, and he's looking for German-speaking men and women who are willing to infiltrate um, these German um, social clubs 
they were called, or um, organizations uh, that he thought that the Nazis were funding, and he asked her to work for him. And she's just she just thinks he's crazy. Like she's like, this is kind of nuts to to be accusing my own my German neighbors and my friends of you know whatever collaborating with a foreign government. Um, but she agrees to work with him for him because she needs the money. And so as she does do her job of becoming a spy and learning how to infiltrate these organizations, she starts to believe him. And, um, and that's kind of where the story starts of her becoming this, um, this unwilling spy for Leon Lewis. Well, that, that brings up a lot of questions I want to ask. One is a little bit more about the historical context. And you mentioned how, you know, Adolf Hitler was off in Germany and he, you know, he hadn't risen to, you know, that the, the prominence that we know him today. And so what was uh, that context like in 1933 um, with the rise of fascism? Was it even on anyone's radar you know, and where, what, what position in the, obviously the United States didn't have the same amount of power as it would after World War II. So what was all that like in an international context? Well, I mean, that's a, that's a series of college classes right there, (laughs) but, but the, in a nutshell, I would say, so, so Hitler was appointed chancellor in March of 1933. Um, They, at the time, Hindenburg was still the leader of Germany but that that ended very quickly as Hitler took power and very brutally got rid of everyone that may have have had any you know any power or would have stood up against him. Um, and then he very quickly started instituting some of his policies. So there was concern on the international scene, but one of the first things that that Hitler did was take control of the media in Germany. So no reports could really get out to the rest of the world other than things that he wanted the rest of the world to know. So there was a lot of confusion, um, like in the United States and in the UK about what was actually going on. Was he really crazy? Was he, was he, you know, consolidating power? Was he building an army, which at that time was illegal because, because the treaty of Versailles, Germany wasn't supposed to be building any kind of army. Of course, they were. Um, So there was a lot of confusion going on in the media, and we didn't have the kind of communication we had in those days. So nobody really knew what was going on. And during and at the same time, in the United States, we had the Great Depression really starting into some pretty tough years of the early 30s, 33, 34. And... So a lot of people in the U.S. were just not interested. They're like, we have problems of our own. We have prohibition. We have the depression. We have a rising crime. Um, and in Los Angeles in particular, they had a lot of um, racial unrest. Um, so Hitler was very much on the back burner. Um, so that's kind of why Liesel is kind of the personification of how the U.S., looked at Hitler at that time, which is basically like, maybe he's a bad guy, but I have too many other things to worry about. Sure. Well, let's go back to to Leon. Who was Leon Lewis exactly? Why was he such an important historical figure at this time? Yeah, I mean, he was quite a hero. I'd say he's the hero of this story. 
um, and it, and you know an actual person. This is all based on um, research into his real activities. Um, he was he was a um, in the army, I believe, in World War One, maybe the Air Force. I can't quite recall, but he was involved in World War One, and he was he also spent some time after World War One in the cleanup was basically what they called it, which was transporting all the soldiers back and kind of like doing all the paperwork and cleanup in Europe before, after the, after the war, but also after the Spanish flu epidemic. So, so he was there when Hitler was just this rabble rouser. Um, and he saw how anti-Semitic he was and was concerned, you know, obviously because he, because Leon Lewis was Jewish, but nobody else really cared about it a whole lot. Um, but he kept an eye on Hitler when Leon Lewis moved back and started his law practice. He worked in Chicago and then he moved out to LA and he kept an eye on Adolf Hitler and what was happening in Germany um, just because of what he'd seen in him. He, he'd noticed that this guy had, a, had charisma, people followed him, he was a great speaker um, and then when he started rising to power, uh, Lewis was very concerned, and rightly so. The other thing that is hard for us to remember, I think, is that anti-Semitism was very common in those days, in those years. Um, what, what we would probably be shocked at was, you know, common knowledge and co commonly spoken of. Um, Jews were very much, um, they were kept out of social clubs. They were not allowed to to mingle with, you know, non-Jews, Christians, um, they were very much looked down upon and that was pretty normal. So the stuff Hitler was saying wasn't completely out of what regular people would have been saying at the, in those days too. And how did you come across this history? Was it something that was always on your radar or maybe something came up in your research for a previous novel in a far off land? Yeah, that's exactly what happened. Um, I was researching, well, I was probably done researching in a far off land, but I was still, you know, picking up stuff about Hollywood in the 1930s and reading it. And I saw this um, book called Hitler in Los Angeles. And the full title is How Jews Foiled the Nazi Plots Against Hollywood in America. I was like, what? <laughs> That's, that doesn't seem like a thing. I've, I've read a lot of history I've never heard of the Hitler, you know, attempting to take over Hollywood. I thought maybe that's just kind of some like dramatic something that wasn't historically based. But I picked up the book and it's written by Stephen J. Ross. And it was actually a, a Pulitzer Prize finalist in 2017. I'm like, wow. So I read it and I, I'd only gotten maybe two two chapters in when I'm thinking, why don't people know about this? This is so amazing, like what was happening and what Leon Lewis did to stop it. Um, and I knew, I was like, this would make a great book. I would love to write a book about this. And since I'd just, just done one in 1930s Hollywood, it wasn't a great stretch for me to consider doing another one in that time period. Can you put into your own words just how important the accomplishments of Leon Lewis and, and those working undercover to fight the Nazi propaganda in Hollywood, how important that was and, and just what they were able to do. Yeah. I mean, I would call it heroic. 
Like, we have no idea what may have happened had Leon Lewis not seen this happening um, and, and done his own. I mean, nobody was, would help him. And so he stepped out on his own with his own funds, his own time, really risked his life because the Nazis that were already in Hollywood in the 30s were dangerous. Um, they were willing to kill. And you can read that in in Stephen Ross's book or do your research on if they were they were very um, serious about what they were trying to do. So, you know, it's possible that if they had not been stopped by Lewis and his very few operatives that he that he hired, um, we could have had, you know, a Nazi, you know, column of a Nazi what would you call it? Force right in California when we were, when we were fighting World War II, which could have changed the war dramatically in Germany's favor. So I just think it can't be overstated how important he was. So were you able to find out more information about some of those working undercover? Um, I'm assuming Liesel was a fictional character. Was she based on some of the real people that you came across? Yeah, she was fictional because his actual operation lasted well over a decade. And a lot of it was legal in nature. It was filing motions and um, trying to get people deported. Very boring stuff for fiction. Not not all that interesting. But there were some really dramatic incidents that made it into the into my fictional book that actually happened. Um, and they were based on some of the women that... Um, that Leon Lewis hired. They, there was a mother-daughter team called Sylvia and Grace Comfort, um, and they worked with him for many years as operatives, um, and they were very well accepted in the German community. They were allowed to take notes at the meetings. Um, people thought they were Nazis for many years, and they weren't. They were working for Lewis the whole time. Um, so I based a lot of Liesel's, um, what happened to Liesel and what she did on the comforts and some of the events that that happened during her time during their time. Hey listeners, this is Colin Mustful, the founder of History Through Fiction, and I just wanted to take a quick break to tell you more about the sponsor of today's episode, Anna's Promise by DG Schulman. David and Alexandrov lock eyes and grip each other's hands. The Cossacks gather around their commandant, cheering and howling as the two men engage in a battle of strength and positioning. The stakes are David's daughters. His determination to save them is palpable, and the reader is pulled into the scene, rooting for him to come out on top. This scene is a small taste of the rich and emotionally charged historical fiction that Anna's Promise offers. Slipping between war-torn Poland and modern American life, Anna's Promise weaves together the story of one Jewish family across three generations. The novel follows the journey of Anna, David's daughter, a young woman who endures the hardships and persecution of World War I Poland to keep a promise made to her father. In 1975, through her relationship with her grandson, Ben, Anna discovers the strength of her own convictions as the family battles gangsters, the law, and faces the ultimate test of love and loyalty. So 
So you, you mentioned that this, some of it was very boring stuff for fiction. Uh, so I, I did want to ask you, as a historical fiction novelist, where did the research end for you and the storytelling begin, and, and how did you manage that? Yeah, that's a tough question. It was, it was so... Um, like the things Leon Lewis and his operatives did through that 10 years, um, there were so many story starters, I guess is what I would call them. Like you'd be like, Oh wow, that would make a great scene. And you could just take it like the real thing and just make a scene out of it. Um, the timing of course was, I was had to be fictional because my book is set in about a six month time period whereas a lot of these things happened over many years. Um, so I guess the, the storytelling came in with condensing it um, and making things work together, whereas the real history is much more extensive and kind of drawn out. So did you find yourself writing numerous scenes, just kind of experimenting with ideas that didn't make it into the final novel? You know, a few. I'm pretty careful plotter um in most of my books i've i plot things out pretty well before i put a lot down because i really am bad at editing myself i'm bad at deleting things that i've already written and i i i um, don't want to delete my words <laughs> so so i've learned only to write the scenes that i know i'm gonna need because it's real hard for me to get rid of things that I've already written. So I would say that I did a, a good job of plotting this novel out before I ever um, really sat down and did the writing. Can you talk about some of the differences between In a Far Off Land and Codename Idlevice? Um, obviously, it's the same period, the same place, but different topics. Um, was it, you know, did your writing style change at all? Um, were you able to rely on some of the things you learned from In a Far Off Land in order to write uh, Codename Idlevice, or, or how did that work for you? Yes, In a Far Off Land was was close in setting and time period, um, but the voice of the characters are very different. Mina was kind of a, oh, you know, uh, actress, and she was very hip and, like, kind of, Oh, I don't know what the word I would describe with Mina, but she was very modern speaking, you know, and had a lot of little, you know, mannerisms and cute little vocabulary that um, that people in that time used. Whereas um, Liesel is very straight laced. She's a she's a German woman, like very German. Um, she's very uh, practical. Um, she was is no nonsense. She wants to do her job, get it done, and spend time with her family. So they're very different books in the way that Mina was um, in the Hollywood scene, and there's a lot of partying, and you could see like a lot of what was going on in Hollywood. Whereas it's uh, Codename Edelweiss's secondary themes are more about family. Um, raising children, um, security during that time of the depression and how difficult it was to be a single mother um, and how difficult it was to be a working woman 
um, and what she had to face in, in, as a working woman during the 1930s. So yeah, the themes are very different. Um, they couldn't be more different, really, Mina and, and uh, Liesl. If, I, if they met each other, they probably wouldn't understand each other. <laughs> Were the, were the themes different enough that you you did feel like you were writing a completely new story or did you find yourself getting a little bit uh, maybe uh, exhausted from the same era? No, I don't. I don't feel like I did because I think of In a Far Off Land as a murder mystery um, with a lot of romance in it. So that was kind of the feel of that book was, you know, you're waiting to find out who did it. Um, and then there's a couple of romances going on, which was really fun for me. And I love to write a romance in a book, but Codename Edelweiss doesn't have a romance. Um, and it's more of a, it's almost more of a thriller. There's more like, um, there's more suspense and secretiveness and more of a, the feel of a spy novel than it is a mystery. So because they're such different, almost like different genres within a genre, um, I never felt like, I never got fatigued and said like, oh, I'm tired of 1930s Los Angeles. Um, no, because they, they felt really different to me. So we were talking before our interview here about what it takes to be an author, to be a publisher, and some of the challenges involved. So that leads me to a question about, you know, you've written so many novels now. Um, how do you define success as an author? Hmm. I guess I'm still kind of wondering that myself, maybe. It's funny because when you start writing, you think success is finishing a manuscript. Okay, then you do that. And then success is getting an agent. Um, and if you can manage to do that, then you're like, oh, I've, I've done it now. Then success is selling a book. Um, but I think we find it with each step along the way that there's a, a new goal that kind of moves the goalposts. You know? um, and I guess success for me is changing also. I mean, everybody wants to be on the New York Times bestseller list or to win an award. Um, but the more I write, the more I want to to write for my actual readers, for the people who who email me and the people who are on Facebook with me and say, we want another book from you. And we're looking, for, you know, they want something good to read. And they're the ones now that I want to write for. Um, so it's fun to have a, you know, like a supportive following that is looking for what you write. So I guess my success would be, and I'm hoping for, when Codename Edelweiss comes out, that all of these readers who've been asking me for a book, you know, respond to me and say, we loved it. This is awesome. We're going to tell all our friends to buy this book. So that would that would probably be my, my idea of success these days. But I wouldn't mind the New York Times bestseller list. <laughs> well, you, you made some good points there that I, I certainly can find relatable about moving the goalposts and it's, mm -hmm. you know, your pr perspective is always changing. And, and, and I'm going to admit this, I don't know if you have the same experience, but s s when you do start to get some people that are really interested in your work, your work, you find that 
they are like more into more passionate about the topics than you are even capable of being have have you had had that experience <laughs> Yeah, some, some of them. Uh huh. It's like, wow, like you really, I, I can't imagine. There's some readers out there that I can't believe how much they can read. Like, oh, definitely. You know, I mean, I'd love to read three books a week, but there's people out there that are reading five books a week. Um, and we just can't keep up with them as authors because there's only so many hours in the day but yeah some of them are very enthusiastic fans and I have to say like I just love that I love it when someone totally gets into it um, and wants to know more about the history side or wants to just talk about how much they liked a book or the character or how much it meant to them so yeah I think that's fun so where do you stand now in the in the publishing process? Do you have just a regular routine uh, that your agent finds, you know, and you work with the same publisher every time, or is every book a new journey finding out where and how it's going to be published? Uh, it's kind of both. Um, within a far off land, um, I think I kind of lucked out because before it was even released, I'd had this idea um, for Codename Edelweiss. And so I just presented it directly to the publisher with my agent also and said, this is my idea. And they loved it so much. They were just like, yes, let's just write it, do it. Um, so that was nice. And I'd never had that happen before. Um, but with the way things are now in publishing and um, book sales are kind of down, um, this next book, I think I'm going to have to write it and sell it um, through my agent you know, in the traditional way of finishing it up and then sending it out to, you know, publishers who might be interested. So um, I think each book kind of has its own path. And, and what is the topic of your next book that you're working on? Well, actually, I just started on a new book. I, I took some time off to market Codename Edelweiss because, as you know, that is a full-time job sometimes. It's mm -hmm. just the marketing of books. Um, and I really want this book to be successful. And so I spent a lot of time, you know, growing my reader base, um, which meant that I couldn't be writing. So I just started fiddling around, let's say. I'm not going to definitively say I'm writing this book, but I'm messing around with a book um, that I'd really like to do, which is about three sisters who um, leave Minnesota and go to um, Yellowstone Park for, for the summer um, in 1959 and are not aware that in August of 1959, the biggest earthquake that ever in the history of Montana um, hits, that, hits Yellowstone Park. Um, and it's a little piece of history that I don't think people know about and like how that was managed um, and how difficult it is to find survivors in a situation where it's a national park and you don't even know who's there and who's not. So, um, so it's really interesting and I'm kind of messing around with a book along those lines. Well, that sounds fascinating. And, and one thing I enjoy most about historical fiction is I learn things that I don't, I don't learn in history class. Yeah. Um, I didn't know about Leon Lewis, for instance, and I didn't know about the 1959 earthquake in Yellowstone. Um, do you travel out to Yellowstone much? Actually, I was born there. Um, and oh, my wow. parents were there for the earthquake. 
Um, so I'm getting a lot of inf information from my mom and her two sisters who were also there um, and lived there at the time of the earthquake. So this is a fun one because my research is actually talking to my mom, <laughs> or at least the, the beginning of my research is getting information from her. Sure. So what do you do when you're not, when you're not writing? Oh my goodness. These days, get ready for Christmas and <laughs> all of that. But, you know, the thing about writing is it's a very sedentary activity, as I'm sure you know. Um, so I feel like when I'm not writing, I need to be doing um, very active things. So I do a lot of dog walking. Um, and in the wintertime, I like to snowshoe and get outside and, and do that kind of thing. Um, or just spend some time with my my big kids, I have adult kids, so we do some fun things. And I'm traveling again, thank thank goodness um, that COVID is done and we can travel again. I'm heading to Cambodia and Thailand in January. So that'll be my first big trip since COVID. And I'm, I'm excited and also a little nervous. <laughs> sure. Well, that sounds exciting. Mm-hmm. Well, Stephanie, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Congratulations on your newest novel, Codename Edelweiss, and, and thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you. It's been really nice to talk to you. 